Falls Erdin. Hello. You are, how would you describe yourself? Like, do you, I would say Weird. ventriloquist stand-up. Yeah. Or would you just say ventriloquist? Uh, yeah, I don't know, really. It's, it's stand-up comedy, but the gimmick is ventriloquism. Right. Really, because if you say ventriloquist, people always go, ooh, and they picture some old bloke with a duck, and um, I'm trying to get away from that. Well, the first time I saw you, because I do, I mean, that is certainly, that's people's general perception, but the first time I saw you was in Edinburgh at a gig called Late and Live. Oh, yeah, I was which, going back a few years. Yeah, which is, it's notoriously, and definitely at the time, was a bear pit, and, you know, anyone who wasn't I've seen like Dara O'Brien die yeah. in their ass there like loads of really yeah, now yeah. very famous comedians yeah and you completely stormed it and it was brilliant and it was this thing of going what like v- ventriloquist this shouldn't, but funny this shouldn't and be happening I'm briefly interrupting to let you know that I'm Marsha from yesyesmarsha.com and this is from a series of interviews that I did from 2009 to 2011 called Marsha Meets which were long-form interviews with stand-up comedians that eventually inspired the book Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. That book's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. Back to the interview. Well, I remember I was doing the, I was working at the Gilded Balloon and it was a last-minute show. I think Jerry Sadovitz was due to do a show in the venue I was in and at the last minute he was already somewhere else and he hadn't got together the other show. So they said, this promoter came up to me at the comedy store one night and said, do you want to do Edinburgh? And I went, no. And they said, oh, please, we'll pay for everything so you won't lose any money. And I went, oh, all right then, I'll do it. So I did it and I was at the studio at the Gilded Balloon and because it was last minute, I wasn't in the main brochure. So they were doing everything they could to sort of promote the show. And so I'd be doing Late and Live a lot. And I didn't know any, I'd never even heard of, it, heard of it. So the first night I did it, I was backstage and everyone was coming in. Marcus Briggs got walked in and went, I smell death. And there was just this, oh, you're doing Late and Live. Oh, well, good luck with that. And I think Adam Hills was comparing, who's this brilliant Australian comedian. And, um, you know, there were, it was two o'clock in the morning and it was a rowdy, rowdy lot. And I just thought, well, it's a gig, isn't it? I'll, you know, have my own experience here. I won't listen to what everyone else says about it. I'm getting the impression this might be a bit of a tough gig. But I just went out and did what I did, and I had a really good time, and I did it quite a few times. And I stood him up one night. I got a standing ovation one night, and everyone was like, that never happens here. It you doesn't. and your puppets. What's going on? <laughs> so I have very happy memories of late in life. But do you find there is still that perception? Because of, I mean, not just Keith Harris and Orville, but, you know, horror films and... I remember watching the Justin Lee Collins did a documentary where he had to learn to become a ventriloquist. I was on it. Oh, you were I on it. I was helping him. Of course. He borrowed my puppet. Yeah, so he went out to this convention. Yes. In... Kentucky. Yeah, you've been to those, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, I have, yeah. They are mental. I went to that some years ago. In fact, I went about three or four times, actually. And um, it actually makes you feel sane when you go there and you look at all these others. Because most of them are amateurs. I mean, it's about 500 ventriloquists take over this convention from all over the world, predominantly from various states in America, but... There was a Japanese ventriloquist one year and a, a German ventriloquist. And it actually, it was really funny watching it because the German ventriloquist was standing there. He had his leg on a stool and he had his puppet and he was doing the act in German. And then he had another mate of his, a ventriloquist also from German, translating into English. And it was the funniest thing. It was so surreal. But generally, all these ventriloquists take over this hotel and they are bonkers they walk around with the puppets on their arms and there'll be a ventriloquist with his puppet going hi uh, can we have a room for two and they'll be walking around hi how are you and they're talking through it and it's honestly it's embarrassing and that kind of makes me i mean i i love certain aspects of ventriloquism and what i do but i know why people think oh they're all a bit weird especially after all the movies and things where they've been portrayed as complete nutcases that want to kill people if they did that with their puppets did you reply back with your puppet i would just sort of do a (laughs) 
uh, kind of sort of embarrassed smile. But did that make you the weirdo? Yes, them? that would make me. I wasn't, you know, well, I wasn't being a sport really. I was the way I sort of pictured it was that I was on the edge, just sort of looking in, right. even though I was one of them. I think the professionals, you know, the amateurs in, in anything now, amateurs take it more seriously than the professionals do. Professionals just do it. It's a job. You just get on. You do it. Whereas amateurs. That's it. They kind of, you know, they live for it. And I, th- I think they take it much more seriously. And why did you go to the convention? Like, what happens, apart from just like-minded people getting together? I presume well, that was- I was starting out, or I had been going for a few years, and um, I'd heard about it and thought, I'd better go and have a look at this. And I went to see it, and actually it was very interesting because I saw people like Jeff Dunham, who's now a big star, thanks to his Ahmed, the dead terrorist, YouTube clip, and various other people. And watching him, he did lots of lectures and things, and it was very interesting. And they were all hanging on his every word, and I thought, wow, he's going to be somebody someday. And he's done brilliantly. Um, And I also was doing a kids' show for GMTV at the time as a presenter, and I thought this would be a really good piece for, for the GMTV's main show. We were doing a preschool kids' programme at the time. And so I convinced GMTV to let me go back the following year with a crew and do a whole piece on how bonkers these people are. When you did that TV presenting, you were really young, weren't you? I was about 20, 21. Um, yes. But you'd started doing stuff quite... How old were you when you started out? Because you didn't start out doing ventriloquism, did no, you? No, I started as a magician and I left school at 15, 16 and then I went to work in a magic shop and in my spare time I was doing kids' parties... I was doing close-up magic. I was one of those annoying idiots in restaurants that when you're having a romantic dinner for two, some bloke would come and go, hello, would you like to see a card trick? And that was me. Um, and I was doing, I put together a bit of a stand-up act. It was like a sort of comedy, comedy magic. I never wanted to be David Copperfield. I right. always wanted to be sort of Tommy Cooper-y and kind of take the mickey out of it a bit. And then I made a lot of contacts, got myself an agent, and she sent me on a cruise ship. And what she was that said, like? Well, it was fantastic. She said, right, what have you got that's different? And I said, well, I'm a magician, and I'm young, and I'm brilliant. And she said, yeah, but I've got loads of young and brilliant magicians. What else can you do? I said, well, I am kind of interested in ventriloquism. She said, well, go away and practice. And when you've got an act, come back and see me. So that's what I did. I went away, and I learned ventriloquism from a book. I got a puppet made. Some bloke put an ad in the back of the stage. Uh, and made me a sort of Muppety type. It was like a rip-off of Ernie from Sesame Street, really. And I cobbled together some old jokes and put in this puppet into my comedy magic act. And she said, right, well, that looks great. We'll have some photos done. And she sent me on a cruise ship for two months in Scandinavia. And I used to do a kids' show in the afternoon in this sort of cafeteria with all families. And then at midnight in the nightclub, I used to have to do a sort of late-night adult comedy show and I didn't really know what I was doing I just sort of blagged it but it was the best experience ever and I came back after a couple of months thinking wow that's it I'm you know I'm the dog's nuts now I know exactly what I'm doing and then she sent me up to the northeast doing holiday camps and working men's clubs and that's when it all sort of came it all just went and I was like oh my god I thought it was easy how old were you at the time I was about 18 that must have been nuts then being are you from the you're from the south yeah like suddenly because at that age who's this posh southern (laughs) bastard with his spongy puppets (laughs) well just most kids that age are you know at home in their mom and dad's house and suddenly you're off in places that I didn't really know much about the north when I was growing up well I didn't but I found out quite quickly and I learned very very fast and the worst thing was not just having things thrown at you but it was being ignored really and you learn how to go out there and get an audience and keep their attention that's the hardest thing because if you get in the way of their bingo or anything that messes up their night they don't care how brilliant or how rubbish you are was that quite exciting though as a 17 year old going around all that really (laughs) no it was it was exciting because I just had this inner belief I knew that I wanted to do something like this and this is what you did I knew about these people that I'd seen on telly like Paul Daniels and you know Brian Connolly and all those comedians and thought well that's what you do you work your way up you do the working men's clubs and eventually you'll get a break 
break on telly and then you become famous and you have your own TV series and that's what happens. That's what I thought you did. So I knew, even though when I'd be driving back, you know, at four o'clock in the morning from Cleethorpes, my little Peugeot 205 in tears, <laughs> having had stuff thrown at me and people telling me to get off, you know, I knew that I would get through it. It's interesting that though, because that isn't really what happens now. I mean, at the moment... Different. Yeah. You ring up a comedy club, you get an open spot, probably in six months' time, and you get five minutes in a room above a pub. And then you do another one, and you do another one. And I think it is, in a way, it's a lot easier. Because also, people have come paid to see a comedy night. Whereas, you know, when you're doing the holiday camps and you're doing the workmen's clubs, they haven't really paid to see you. You are there. You're a bit of a nuisance, really. So... I think it is a bit easier. And I think when I do a lot of corporate stuff now, and when you're doing corporate entertainment, that's almost, that reminds me of those sort of audiences that they don't care that you're on. They don't know that you're on. They are being taken out for the evening by their company or whatever conference it is. And at the end of their conference day of lectures or whatever, they're having a big dinner and then there's entertainment provided. They know there's going to be something, but they don't know it's you. They don't know it might be so and so off the telly or you know, anybody, um, and they don't really care. And you can be on too late and they can be drunk. The lighting could be rubbish, the sound could be rubbish. Everything can be working against you and you learn how to sort of somehow pull it out of the bag. And I think having done those sort of horrible hard geeks, it does stand you in good stead. Do you have any particular, like, tricks for, you know, if you've got a room full of people just talking about their puddings or something, of getting their attention? Um, well, you always make sure that they've had pudding first, right? It's a simple rule. Make sure they've put the dessert down and they've served coffee. Then get on. Don't do it while they're serving coffee. Make sure that you're given a proper introduction and then you've got a fighting chance. If you're on and they're serving the main course, they're going to be looking at their food. They might have been waiting for their food for a long time. There are all sorts of things going on, so you need to get that out of the way before the entertainment can be given a chance. So you were doing that, you were doing the holiday camps and the working men's clubs and then you got this TV show. The kids presenting, that was for GMTV, when GMTV first got the franchise from TVAM, Disney were responsible for all the kids' output at the weekends and I used to present a show at 6 o'clock called Rise and Shine until 7.30 and then there was another show called Saturday Disney and then Disney Adventures and then on Sunday morning there was Disney Club and I auditioned for Disney Club and they said, we love you, but you... And I auditioned with the puppet. They said, because you can do this, there's something else coming up. We, you should, you'd be more suited for that. So I invented Sam for this show, which is one of my main characters now. And I did that for two years. With Sam, and you have a few different characters, don't you? A few different puppets. Yeah. How do you kind of come up with the characters from them? Is it people you know or...? Because um, they presumably have to have quite distinct characters. Yeah, they do. And, and it takes a bit of time because, you know, Sam was the kids' presentery, very friendly TV character and also working for Disney it had to be squeaky clean so when I finished I then went back into more holiday camps and more club situations and his character just sort of it just sort of evolved and it the material changed to suit those sort of environments and then he became more cocky and cheeky I, I guess he's like a modern day Bart Simpson now really he's just a cheeky little shit really and um, has a go at me and has a go at the audience and he's a modern-day cheeky boy. Ventriloquists have always had a cheeky boy doll. He's the modern equivalent of that, really, but more muppety and a bit sort of cooler-looking, I think. And with him being cheeky, like, presumably you can get away with a lot more. You can say stuff to puppets. audience members or whoever, yeah. because it's not actually you. Puppets it's... can definitely get away with more than, than humans. And there's loads of interaction with the audience. I've got an old man who's Sam's granddad, and he looks a bit like one of the old men from The Box in The Muppet Show. And he's deaf and senile. He still chases the women, just can't remember why. But he's always flirting with the woman in the front row. And the baby is sort of slowly being led astray by the other two and wants to be breastfed by a woman in the front row. There's, 
I'm always hoping there's a lot of women in the front row <laughs> for my act to work. So, that, I mean, they've all got very different characteristics, but they're all quite cheeky. So they're similar, but there's, you know, Albert's old and he's got all the old... The, the comedy comes from getting old and I'm not taking the piss out of being old. I'm pointing out the funny side of, of it. You know, everyone's got someone that's a granddad or had a granddad and they've, you know, the hearing goes and it's, you know, it's just life. And so the comedy, I think, comes from their characters. Do they ever get you in trouble? Have you ever actually got in trouble with audience members? I actually, I was doing a show in Blackpool the summer season. This is after I'd done a bit of telly. Some years later, after the kids' show, I won a talent show called The Big Big Talent Show with Jonathan Ross on ITV. And the control of entertainment was a man called Nigel Lithgow. Me Nasty on all these Nigel. Nasty Nigel from Pop Stars. And he put me on all these other shows, all these sort of like entertainment shows. And then from that, I got a season of my own, the Paul Zerdin show in Blackpool uh, with singers and dancers. And it was fantastic. And I did that for two years. And on the first night, it was a matinee, actually, and the first show, I'd never done a Blackpool audience before. The first show, I just started this routine where the puppet was having a go at someone in the front row. And this bloke got up and he had just a vest on. He was covered in tattoos. And he walked up in front, it was like a, it was a sort of cabaret stage, there were about 500 people in the room. And this bloke walked towards me, got on stage, walked towards me, I was thinking, all right, well, he wants to be part of the show, you know, I'll go with it. And he punched me in the <laughs> chest, I fell back, the table fell over, the puppet's just dangling there, and I'm looking like this... I always say there's nothing... The, the ugliest sight in the world is a naked man falling over in a locker room in my gym. You know, there's just dangly bits hanging, and it's just, I think, men naked falling over, it's just so ugly. And I must have looked pretty similar to that with this little spongy kid's puppet dangling from my arm, and this bloke having a go at me, effing and blinding, saying, don't you call me ugly, don't you, blah, blah, blah. And it was about a minute, and the audience were like... <gasps> And I think at first they thought it was part of the show and then they realised from the look on my face that it wasn't. And then eventually he stopped, turned around, went and sat back down with his wife and two kids. And uh, I carried on with the show thinking, oh my God, I've only been on stage for five minutes, I've got another 45 minutes to do. And I was absolutely... I was shitting it. <laughs> but I carried on. Did and you just the, carry on like uh, nothing had happened? Yeah, I just said, well, I'm sorry if I've, really, if, if I've offended you. And I wanted Sam to go, then good, you bastard. <laughs> but um, I went, then I'm sorry, I got him a round of applause for being a good sport and carried on thinking, oh, my God, this is Blackpool. I've got four months up here, two shows a day. And then at the end of the show, he led a standing ovation. Seriously? Yeah. Wow. Well done. <laughs> but, you know, that, it's a horrible way to learn, but, you know, you just... It's live, isn't it? Did it make you, like, the it, next it, night? It made you... me rewrite my act slightly. Did it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or just pick on smaller-looking people. Yeah, definitely, yeah. <laughs> um, do you ever... Do the puppets ever say stuff that you're not expecting? I've heard that before of... Um, no, never, because obviously it's me, but I will be in a situation where something's happened, or occasionally, and I particularly... This does happen with my old man character, Albert. His face really makes me laugh. I had him designed to just look funny, and he's got a really funny face, I think. And sometimes I'm looking at him, and, and I've been in situations where the gig's been really hard, they've not been up for it, whatever, but he's kept me smiling, because I just look at him, and he just makes me laugh. And I think you almost, when you've been doing it for for a while, your brain sort of splits into two. So I know what I would say in a situation and I know what he would say in a situation. When, and when I say he, I'm saying him because he's the character Albert. I don't really speak to them when I'm at home. Right. I don't speak to them off stage. You know, it's a prop. But in that situation, I'm acting and I'm pretending that he's alive and he's talking and I'm reacting. And so there'll be moments when I ad lib and he'll say something to me and it just happens it's not me going wow that was amazing Albert say something else that's brilliant <laughs> but it's it's not that you're subconscious no suddenly. you just sort of go you go into it I'm playing like there'll be Albert you know he'll be hello are you alright what are you alright what well we're doing this fantastic podcast where well we're here what 
Why don't you say hello? Who to? Well, well, there's lots of people listening. What? And it'll just be this sort of, it's just a natural, you know, it's just a bit of dialogue, really. I mean, I realise now, having done that, that wasn't particularly funny. But um, you pretend in that situation that they are real. And so things, especially if someone heckles you or something happens, some of the best ad libs have been an ad lib. And then I think, oh, that's a good line. And you try and write it in the next night so you can sort of, you know, force it to happen again. I have a question that's a bit weird. We had Greg Davis on the podcast last week and uh, he was talking about doing his solo show compared to doing the sketch stuff that he does in We Are Clang and how when you're doing something on your own, it's good because when it goes well, you kind of, you know, it's all about you. But the bad side of it is when it goes badly, at least if there's other people there, you kind of get to spread it about a bit. And is there any... I know that you don't go home and sit and chat to your puppets, but is there any kind of spreading... Does it kind of dissipate? that sort of thing at all the fact that it's you and characters and um what so that if i'm in a terrible situation i'm dying on my ass i'm it feels slightly less traumatic it looks like there's someone else there with me to share it (laughs) yeah um i I have i do have that with comics on the circuit i'll go oh it's all right for you zerd and you know it's not just you up there so in a way it's just like a you know that's like the ultimate compliment in a way well it is me just up there and i'm having to be two people you bastard so it's a lot more it's a lot harder than then you're just standing there telling a joke. It's the same thing, really. I think the difference is I've got someone that I can start a conversation up with. And if I am dying or it's it's a hard crowd, I can make a joke as if it's someone else. There's lots of stuff in the show now, lots of new stuff I'm doing without the puppets as well, which I'm keen to exploit and explore. But can when you, you sort of, without giving away too much, explain well, a little I bit? Well, I talk about using ventriloquism in everyday life, like um, a pregnant woman walks past and I... Um, throw my voice and do hey mummy let me out you know doing all that kind of stuff there's lots more stand up about being a ventriloquist that you can do without having to just stand there with a puppet so there's a lot of that in this show and um, things like I'll go into the audience and I'll hear people's thoughts and I'll hear different members of the audience thinking about what they think of the show and then they'll hear me what I'm thinking about them so again it's just playing with the the art of ventriloquism, really, and just trying to do something a bit different. You also do a thing where you kind of put a fake mouth on a member of the audience. Yeah. Which I've seen. It's brilliant. There's clips of it up on YouTube. And you did it with Bruce Forsyth. Oh, I did, yeah. When was that? That was years ago, actually. That was, I think it was 1999 or 2000. And it was the last series of the Palladium show, which he hosted. It was called, it wasn't live in the Palladium. It was Friday night at the Palladium. And they moved it to Sunday night. Or Saturday night. Anyway, they kept moving it around. But I did the first show and they basically said, the producer said to me, we'll have you on the show, but we don't want you to do a spot. You've got to do something with Brucey. And I said, OK, have you got any ideas? Can you make him talk? And I went, yeah, I've got this idea where I turn someone into a human dummy. And I'd just been sort of playing around with it at the time. And um, we basically sort of got together. When I say we, I don't mean me and the puppets. I mean you know, me and my management and the producers of the show and decided that we would have a big Brucey chin mouth made, sort of kind of cartoony thing, which I would put on him and give him a silly voice. And he sounded a sort of cross between Joe Basquale and David Beckham, really. And that was fantastic because he's such a perfectionist. And I think we were recording the show the following week. I had a week to rehearse with him and it was literally, he just said to me, any time you've got, please come in and let's rehearse it. And it looked as if it was all off the cuff and, you know, ad lib, but it was very well rehearsed. And I'd start off by saying, you know, I'm going to get someone out of the audience. We haven't got time, so I'm going to use somebody, you, backstage, you, come here, you, yeah, you, I can't see who it is. And he comes out and goes, you talking to me? Do you know who I am? 
and um, we did this whole routine and I, and I remember doing it thinking wow I'm at the Palladium doing a routine I'm doing a double act with Bruce Forsyth I've made it things don't get better than that and he was fantastic and I, I've got so much respect for the old guys and Des O'Connor's another one I did uh, Des and Mel a lot a few years ago and he's so supportive of new up and coming comics and these guys are sort of real national institutions really aren't they well, you've also, talking of national institutions, done the Royal Variety Show a few times, mm. which is huge. It's a really weird, weird show. The first Royal Show I did, I was in a dressing room. All the comics are put in one dressing room, all the singers. You know, it's just a normal theatre and the TV company take it over. And I was in, I was in a room with uh, Frank Bruno, Alan Davis, Bradley Walsh, Julian Clary, Tony Hawkes and Stephen Fry. Now, there's a mix for you. You know, the Spice Girls were on this show and there's Gary Barlow, you know, all sorts of people. And then I did another one and there's Barry Manilow wandering around backstage. It's just the most bizarre thing. And the, the most I did one last Christmas, which was probably my best one, really, because the first time I, you did it, you, I mean, you're, you're petrified. It's quite a scary ordeal. You're out there doing what you do and yet you've just f- followed, I don't know, I think I, the first one I was on after Kathy Dennis, you know, and she's, you know, she was a big name at the time. But also you, it's, it's shown the, across you, the world. Uh, y- yes, but also you look out and there's Prince Charles sitting up in the box. And then I did another one there's the Queen, you know, and it is a really surreal experience. But last year was probably the most surreal. I was on with um, Jason Manford was on, Hal Cruttenden, you know, some really brilliant comics. And then you had Michael Bublé, Bette Midler, Whoopi Goldberg, and I'm standing next to them in the lineup at the end and I caught Hal's eye and we both we just clocked each other and just thought, you know, isn't this bizarre? What a great gig, but how how odd. And I was watching Bette Midler get ready for the show and she and watching her just, you know, she's a massive star and yet still nervous. Oh, really? Really interesting, yeah. So it does get shown around the world and you do a lot of gigs overseas. Yeah. Do you ever go and do gigs to people who've seen Royal Variety? Uh, yes, actually. Uh, I was in South Africa earlier this year in Cape Town doing the Cape Town Comedy Festival and I was in Johannesburg earlier doing another festival and they'd seen the Royal Variety show there. Australia has had the Royal Variety show and as a result of that I've had various requests to um, stay away from Australia. And um, so I'm looking into maybe going to Australia next year and doing maybe Melbourne and doing a tour. Um, so yes, that's brilliant. It gets shown all over the place, and um, I think it can help. And also YouTube as well. I mean, that's an amazing thing. YouTube is brilliant, but it can also be a nightmare because, for example, I've entertained people like a, there's a Saudi prince who has a party in the Seychelles every so often, and they won't tell me who he is. I've met him, but I don't know who he is. And he saw me on YouTube, or one of his people saw me on YouTube. And, and, they, and he puts on a party and flies out all his friends, you know, in their private jets and flies in entertainment. And each night there's a different theme for a week. And I was part of a cartoon-themed night the first time I did it. I think they thought, well, that bloke with the puppets, we've seen him on YouTube, let's get him over. Fly out there, first class, wow. looked after beautifully, literally fly into the most beautiful location in the Seychelles, do the show, get on the plane the next day and fly home. Whoa. And that's as a result of YouTube. So because of that's that... amazing. You can be all over the world but then again someone you could be in a dingy little club trying some material out somewhere and someone's videoing you on your phone and you're dying on your ass and they stick that on YouTube and then you start getting comments oh we remember when Paul Zerdin was funny so it's like the Michael Richards thing Kramer from Seinfeld he did this whole thing in a comedy club and he was being heckled by some black guys and he said the n-word and he lost it he lost it completely and utterly lost it now he shouldn't have said it but he totally lost it and someone was filming it and they shouldn't have been filming in the comedy club. Now, a few years ago, that would have been probably um, an article in a local paper which probably might have hit one of the nationals or whatever, and then it would have blown over. Now, it's on YouTube. You can see him 
going berserk and totally losing it in a gig in a comedy club in LA and that ended his career and uh, you know I think all right we all make mistakes he made a terrible mistake I think the internet can work against you and I think that's really it's harsh you also have been out to entertain the troops I have where did you go to I went to Iraq twice just after the conflict had started and I went to Afghanistan the year before last and that's CSE which is Combined Services Entertainment which is part of the Ministry of Defence and they have a budget to entertain our boys out there and they take up big big shows they, you know, they put up a big stage in the desert and we did several gigs there was one in Alamara one, I can't remember where all the names of the places now in southern Iraq and the first time we were in we stayed in Kuwait City and we were flown in by Chinook helicopters each day into wow. Iraq. So we flew up the Euphrates, River Euphrates and there was... I literally got my head... I'm poking out my head out of the window in the Chinook with my video camera and the boys are pointing out, oh, that's Saddam Hussein's private yacht and there's this massive yacht on its side with a big hole in it. And, oh, yeah, yeah, that got blown up, you know, in the invasion. And you fly into this base and there's British-American troops there and then you put on a massive show with singers, dancers and there was me and... The first one I did was me and Fred McGauley. And then I went back a few months later with Paul Tonkinson. And it, whether no matter what your political views are, they've still got to be entertained. And I'm doing my job and they're doing their job. So I didn't think there was anything, anything wrong with that. And also you get to see the most amazing things. And they love showing off all their gear. So I've got pictures of me with my head sticking out of a tank with a machine gun and a rocket launcher on my shoulder, you know. But you are in a very serious war situation. Wasn't there a bit of a hairy situation in Iraq where, in your hotel? Yeah, we had a suicide bomb threat made on the hotel and we'd just been out to do some, I think we'd been doing some interviews on BFBS, which is the Forces Radio. We came back and our tour manager said, right, don't want to alarm you, but there's uh, been a bomb threat made on the hotel because Bruce Willis was staying in the penthouse because he was over to entertain the American troops and they'd apparently found out that he was staying there and they'd made a suicide bomb threat. So they, the tour manager said, right, just go into your room, draw the curtains, so if there was an explosion, it keeps the glass away from you, get your stuff and come out, you've got ten minutes, we'll see you outside in the tour bus in ten minutes' time. Now, I've gigged all over the world for years, right, and I literally live out of a suitcase. For the first time ever, I decided to unpack my bag when I'm in Kuwait City and I've hung up every, literally everything I've got all my suits I've got all my short everything I've put everything in drawers and I'm thinking this is the one bloody time there's a bomb threat made and I'm <laughs> I'm trying to unhang all my jeans and you know my nice suits and pack it up thinking I might be blown up I, you know what an idiot but again very exciting but you you are looked after very very well by the army and they wouldn't put you into a really dangerous situation knowingly so you do feel quite safe, actually, even though you might not be. I, I, I loved it, and I'll definitely go again. So you're in, you're in the middle of this tour. This is your first solo tour. Yes, it is. Uh, how do you like touring? Well, I've toured doing the holiday camps and private functions for years and, and the comedy clubs, and also supported people over the years like Joe Pasquale, Norman Wisdom, Ronnie Corbett. So I know what it's like. And in a way, it's there's more pressure because it's on you whereas when you're supporting someone it doesn't matter you know that you're supporting someone famous and you just turn up and you do the first half and it's easy whereas when it's you and it's your show then the pressure is on because you've got to sell the tickets and you hope that there's people out there um, so far it's been fantastic I've been all over the place already and um, the audiences have been brilliant so um, it's all looking good and it's, very, it's lovely to go out to an audience that have actually paid to see you it makes such a difference when you've spent years working in situations where they don't care about you, like the clubs and the corporates and things, and you're just an extra 
an added sideshow, whereas it's your show and you can kind of do what you want in a way. I mean, there's certain, if they see me on telly, then they know that there's certain things that I do and they want to see certain characters or they want to see certain routines. Do they? Do they kind of have that? Yeah, because I've got a lot of new stuff in the show and that's going really well. But if I don't do, for example, if I don't do my human dummy routine where I take someone out of the audience and turn them into a puppet, people complain afterwards and say, well, you didn't do that. And it's a weird thing because, you know, a singer can go out and sing the same songs every time you know they would go and see Elton John you want to hear him do certain songs whatever and obviously they've got new material but there are all these songs that they have they've had these hits so in the same way with comedy you've got routines but once you've done it people know the jokes so it's much harder but if you don't do it then they want to it's like they want to see it live even though they know what's coming after a while I think well I've been doing this routine for a long time now I need to change this now otherwise I'm going to go mental for my own sanity but if you don't do certain things then people do get upset so I try and find a happy medium but I guess there's kind of a, a bit of a difference between, say, doing that human dummy routine as opposed to just doing straight stand-up in that with stand-up, I think people like to think that the person just thought of it yeah. off the top of their head. Yeah. Whereas with the human dummy... They know thing, it's it a routine. Be, yeah. And also, actually, with things like that, going back to doing gigs all across the world, because you've been to loads of different places, is there a certain extent to which you can do routines to non-English-speaking audiences or to, you know, not completely... Um, it is a sort of an international act as far as there are lots of, you know, English-speaking people in the world, so so you can work anywhere. Particularly in Asia, there's this expat community. So when you say, oh, I've just come back from Hong Kong, people are like, wow, did the Chinese really get it? Well, it's actually English and American people you're, you're um, entertaining. But I have been booked for gigs in private functions in places like Colombo in Sri Lanka and they've been predominantly Indian and not all of them have spoken very good English and that's been a challenge and so I've had to think oh wow and I've done uh, you know over a couple of nights there I was doing a Friday Saturday Sunday the Friday night would be a bit touch and go then by the Saturday I'd put in more visual stuff right so I'm relying more on the puppets and the silly look of the puppets and you know really silly almost a bit slapsticky type stuff some of the stuff I do is I do some stand-up about being a ventriloquist, winding up the sound man using a microphone and pretending the microphone's out of sync. Well, it doesn't matter what I'm saying. They can see that that's visual and that works. But some of the other stuff, play on, you know, wordplay and stuff, that doesn't work. So you you kind of learn. So you are touring till the end of October doing yes. the... Spongefest tour. And all of the dates for that are up on your website, which is... It's paulzerdin.com. Which you spell Z-E-R-D-I-N. That's it. Paul Zerdin, thanks so much. That's my pleasure, thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you like that, you'll probably love the book that I put together with Deborah Francis White called Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. So asking them things like, what's your writing process? How do you find your voice? What do you think about touring? How do you deal with hecklers? We interviewed 42 stand-ups, including Eddie Izzard, Sarah Millican, Phil Jupiter, Stuart Lee, Mark Maron. It's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. If you want to find out more, go to Yes Yes marsha.com forward slash off the mic.